Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother. Times are when I'm alone with you, listening to the Stick to Wrestling podcast. I want to thank my friends and Sticks, that fantastic band, for writing that song about their favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling. Ladies and gentlemen, you have put a token in the classic pro wrestling slot machine, and you've hit the jackpot. We're ready to go. This podcast is like a match that would sell out any arena throughout the world. Before we get rolling with part two of WrestleMania X7 review with Brent Nichols, I want to encourage everyone to join our Facebook group. All you have to do is search Stick to Wrestling in that hell site, and you'll get to join. It is a good conversation regarding pro wrestling amongst some very smart people. I also want to encourage you to follow me on Twitter. Just put in the name John McAdam. Follow the guy who has wrestlers fighting with chairs in his avatar. I want to thank Christopher Maynard and Jake the Valentine Hamar for donating to the show. And if you would like to donate, my email address is prowrestlingarchives at gmail.com. You can PayPal me there. No amount is too small and certainly no amount is too much. Before we get rolling, between me and Brett recording, a controversy has come up with Peacock. As you know, they bought all the rights to the WWE archive footage. Last we talked, hey, everything seemed going pretty well. And now they are going to comb over all 17,000 plus hours of footage and make sure that everything's okay. I think that's a huge mistake, and I'll tell you why. If you do that, you're going to have people wondering, okay, why did you leave this on if you took that off? If you just say, hey, look, we're just leaving it alone, that's it, no conversation. I think that would be the smart thing to do, but they've already botched that up. And once again, before we get rolling, I want to thank TGBL, the great Brian Last, for having me on for the fifth year in a row, his 605 opening day Star Wars. If you like listening to this podcast, this was a combination of baseball and wrestling. I was on for like two hours and it flew by. Just put 605 opening day Star Wars in a search and it will come right up. And now we are going to continue with Brett Nicholas and our review of WrestleMania X7. I still can't believe it was 20 years ago. Let's rock. Next up, the match we were just talking about, Kurt Angle defeats Chris Benoit. They had done a really good job elevating Angle over the last few months from being this kind of goofy heel, which he was really good at, to this vicious heel with this move, uh, that ankle lock, that could just take you out. It, it was, and you could still see Angle, in my opinion, probably grasped pro wrestling faster than any person I've ever seen. And it wasn't just the ring work, because he had the amateur background. It was he grasped the character work when he came in. And from the beginning, even when he got hurt and he did the little vignettes that he did, you could see that he just got the character stuff. So much so that they actually let him... If you watch the entrance there, talk himself down to the ring and badmouth the fans and talk himself up. And he was uh, really solid on the mic in that respect. And what I liked about this angle, too, is they used pride as one of the selling points, which is different than so many of the other angles up and down the card where there was stuff like going pee in somebody's tea or <laughs> catatonic wives or destroying motorcycles it was a bit more understated and i thought that was that was a nice change of pace as well as the actual ring work being a nice change of pace yeah a lot of the times when a guy goes from amateur wrestling or football to wrestling like they're not used to the idea of wait a minute i have to lose like angle from day one did not care he was in it to do business and i i think that's a, a big positive for him was he, and I don't know this, was he a wrestling fan growing up before he was a uh, amateur wrestler? Maybe he just got the business in that respect. Because it seems like a lot of these football players that come in, like the Goldbergs and the Lugers and stuff, they don't have that wrestling fan background. And then they get in the business and they're kind of marks for themselves a little bit, especially Goldberg. And they don't quite realize that it's all predetermined and it's okay to lose. I don't think he was a wrestling fan growing up. And sometimes that 
works against you. I think in this case, Kurt Angle was it worked in his favor. It's been it's been twenty years since I read his book, so I, I don't remember if he had mentioned it. But I mean, I know he had an offer from ECW, which they blew <laughs> with him <laughs> famously, famously. <laughs> And then he was a, a sportscaster in Pittsburgh and the WWF made him an offer earlier. And he's like, no, you know, I'm going to try sports casting. And when that didn't work out, WWF was like, okay, you know, you're no longer the, the hot name from the Olympics. You're, you know, that was two, three years ago and he got a lot less money, but he came in and he did what he needed to do to get over. Uh, he absolutely did. And again, that, that, you wouldn't think that somebody who was an Olympic champion who wrestled with, a, to quote Kurt Angle, a freaking broken neck, um, <laughs> would be have that goofy persona that fits so well with Edge and Christian. But then at the same time, he had that ability to turn deadly serious. Yeah. And there's not a lot of guys who have that kind of versatility in character. You can look at some of the all-time greats like a, a Ricky Steamboat or a Rick Rude, and some of the criticism is, where's the versatility in their characters? Kurt Angle had that. That guy was over as a heel, as a face. He was over as a goofy heel. He was over as a goofy face. He was over as a patriotic face, as a you know badass heel. He did it all. Oh, I mean, the three eyes were awesome. Integrity, whatever. I mean, but he was so I serious. <laughs> he was so serious when he was saying it, but he was serious, but... It was like, you know, you're a goofball, dude. You're an idiot. I think he was a great promo. He's one of my all-time favorite wrestlers. On to Chris Benoit. And I know some people kind of wince when his name comes up. But look, he was part of the show. Even before everything happened with him, as far as, you know, him killing his family, I never thought he was a good baby face, ever. Even when he was in Calgary, I thought he would have been way better as a heel and I think the WWF kind of made a mistake making him a baby face. I, I think he was a natural heel. I think he was only a baby face as a result of the pent up, what they term internet wrestling fan saying for years and years, he deserved a push. He deserved a push. And those folks were going to cheer him. And I think they kind of went with that aspect, but I think that's kind of what made him such a lukewarm face. In that he never achieved the the popularity when he was world champ or when he was working upper angles as a face as a Stone Cold or a Rock or a Mick Foley or any of those other top faces. He just never hit that level because he didn't have the persona and he didn't have the mic skills to back it up. As a heel, it's a lot easier to do a quick, intense style heel promo than it is to do a babyface promo that's going to sell a match. I agree. And he, he also, he was a great in-ring worker, but like you said, he could not do a promo and he, he just wasn't charismatic. He didn't have physical charisma. He was a big guy, but he, he just, nothing about him stood out, made him stand out from the crowd. No. And some of his, I did a, a nitro rewatch last year going through the NWO buildup and everything. And some of the promos that he did where they would let him talk as part of the four horsemen was painful painful i mean they were just bad and i i get that they were wanting everybody in the group to get some mic time but i it goes to show how out of control wcw was and how unstructured because i can't imagine vince mcmahon doing the same segments one or two weeks and then not going and saying yeah this isn't going to happen for week three week four week five Well, I like it. I I said about Benoit, you know, make him a heel, give him a manager, and you know the money will come in. All right, that, and by the way, that was a really good match. Uh, most shows that would have been the best match on the show, but this this show was something else. Second best. Yeah, still All one right. to come. Still one to come. Okay, now we've got China against Ivory, and I mean China is on. It, it's funny because China, obviously, she's passed away. She went through some really tough times after this all happened, and she was cooling off a little bit as a wrestler, but they're trying to build around her. They do an angle where she has a chronically injured neck, so now we're believing that some of the other divas can beat her, some of the other female wrestlers can beat her, and China, it, it sounds like a good storyline. Okay, she's so much bigger, but she has this injury, and then China goes and no-sells the injury. 
Yeah, I mean, this was a total, total squash. If anybody could have pulled off, I'm a technical wrestler. I can be crafty and work around this. It would have been Ivory. Instead, they booked her to immediately start begging and pleading to feel like she was afraid, which is just the worst thing you can do in that situation. And then she squashed Ivory in three minutes. And then you're kind of looking at the division and going, well, now what? And at the same time, you have to look at the backstage stuff. And I don't want to speak ill of the dead because I like China and I really feel bad for what happened with her in a tragic situation. And I understand working with Stephanie and Triple H every day probably wasn't great for her mental health after you know losing her boyfriend to the boss's daughter. Mm-hmm. But from all accounts, she was an absolute tear to deal with backstage. Jericho himself has told some stories about how difficult she was to work backstage, her ego, how she was convinced after she did Playboy and got on top that you know she was a star on the level of Austin. And so that's what also makes me question the booking. Not only have you set her up as invincible again, and there's nobody in the division who can touch her, even when she's had a broken neck, apparently, or whatever they called it, but you are enabling that ego even more. And so they ended up, and I don't know how quick it was, it wasn't that much longer after this WrestleMania, that they ended up just getting rid of her, and they never were able to use her to put over new talent like you should have. Yeah, I know what happened with China, you know, when she got a really big head and, and I've heard all the stories. But here's the thing. China and Triple H are from right here in Nashua, New Hampshire. Now, oddly enough, I have met scores of wrestlers, but I have never met either of them. I know people who have met them. And the constant story, this is like in the late 90s, is someone would approach them and just say, hey, can I get my picture taken with you real quick? And Triple H is like, nope, I'm busy. And China would, would be the one saying, oh, come on, take a picture with them real quick. Come on, it's okay. Come on, she smile and take the picture. I've heard that story like three times from three different people. And then you hear about China, you know, it, it was hard for someone, even though I'd never met her. Someone, you know, we went to the same high school and to see what was going on with her 10 years ago. That really sucked. Yeah, I mean, I've heard that she was a really nice person with the fans. Mick Foley speaks very highly of her and was absolutely devastated when she passed away. So I don't want to say, I think you can have an ego backstage and still be good with the fans outside of that. Yeah, and there's always a kind of, I don't know, a paranoia within just about all of the wrestlers, like, this person's not going to use me and use all the hard work that I've put into this to get themselves over. You know, there's, there's that deep rooted paranoia that's in all wrestlers from the top to the very bottom. We're talking about guys on the indie scene working in front of 75 people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there is, but I, I just feel like, and maybe she wasn't willing to do it. I just feel like if WWE was in that position where they felt like she wasn't, being a good citizen backstage that they should have tried to get something out of her to build up a new talent. You know, even if it was just a crazy fluke win for Lita or Trish, since those were the two that they then built around after that, just something to get them going. Yeah. You know, like I said, I I did feel bad for her, especially right around this time, even though she's doing this crazy stuff, like she's just ruining the match for ivory. I mean, she's in a bad situation. The owner of the company's daughter basically stole her boyfriend, her long-term boyfriend. Now, obviously, there's there's discomfort backstage with that, and now she's got nowhere else to go. There's no, okay, I'll let my contract run out, and I'll go to WCW. Like, that is gone. And she's either stuck in that situation with her ex-boyfriend and, the girl who stole her away or she's out of the business and guess what? She's out of the business. Yeah. I mean, that, that's really, I mean, I think there was a lot of people in WWF when WCW got bought that were having those uh uh-oh moments, just like China where I'm in a bad situation and now I don't have an outlet. Yeah. I mean, China had it worse than anybody, but I agree with you. She wasn't the only one. All right. Now we get to some some (laughs) real silliness. Uh, Shane McMahon with Linda McMahon in his corner 
versus Mr. Vince McMahon with Stephanie in his corner. So now we've got Vince and his daughter against Shane and his mom, which is really dumb to begin with the father fighting the son. But now that WCW is officially gone, the McMahons started making it all about themselves. And this is kind of the very start of that. This match to me is like the peak of what the difference between sports entertainment and wrestling is. Yeah. And this is the kind of match that I know some of the uh, old time fans who never even got into the Hogan era WWF because that wasn't wrestling anymore would despise this match. But that said, if you were watching this week to week, the, the only match that I can compare this to payoff wise, and this may be a reference that lost on some people didn't watch ECW was there was a double dog collar match in ECW involving dreamer and Raven and in the end of it, Bill Alfonso um, had had banned the choke slam, and he announced for one night only it was legal. And nine one one came out and choke slammed him. And it was just really cathartic night, if you know that reference. This is similar to me. It was this: we've been watching Vince McMahon do all this stuff. He's so awful. Why is Trish doing this? Why you know? Look at poor Linda. And then you got this huge payoff, and then. It kind of the huge payoff went away a little while later in the show. But uh, for that one period as a wrestling fan, it was that time where you could just be going, yes, yes, yes. Vince got his. Yeah, I, I think Vince, he got his for I, I thought he just got a very small fraction of what he deserved for those unaware. And I kind of forgotten a lot of this. Vince McMahon wants to divorce Linda McMahon so he can pursue a relationship with Trish Stratus. Linda McMahon has a breakdown. So Vince has her over-medicated in a hospital and now is pushing around uh, an over-medicated Linda McMahon in a wheelchair. Shane, who I forget, I forget how long he had been away, been at least for a few months, comes back from hiatus to defend his mom and go after his dad. And the whole thing was such a soap opera. And you're right, the old school wrestling fan in me hated it. But it was it was interesting week to week entertainment. Trish Stratus had to get on Raw in the middle of the ring, bark like a dog, and then strip down to her underwear. And supposedly this Vince McMahon just losing a match was her getting revenge. The revenge I knew she was never getting. True. And and in not to get terribly political, but in 2021 with the Me Too and what we know about sexual harassment and you know, dynamics of power and stuff. It it can be a bit of a tough watch with Trish and Vince, you know, wondering why is she doing this? She feels like she has to do this because he's the boss and, you know, her making out with Vince in front of Linda, which I always wondered how Linda felt about that off screen. You know, it's one thing if you're an actor that, you know, it's your spouse or your significant other is going to have to kiss somebody on screen, but this wasn't an actor. This was your husband who's just the CEO of, CEO of a company who's choosing to book himself in a angle where he gets to make out with the hot 25-year-old. I've always had this thing with the McMahons that they are willing to go so far above and beyond with some of the stuff that they do that how can you say no to an angle where Linda McMahon has agreed to sit there and watch her husband make out with Trish Stratus. Like, what are you saying no to? Yeah. I mean, yeah, Vince, Vince will do it. And you know, the the other thing I noticed about this match that got me thinking about it is if you notice during the match, whenever Vince is on equal footing with Shane, he's getting his butt kicked. And it struck me as that because 10, 15, definitely 15 years later, Shane had completely forgotten that lesson himself. If you've watched (laughs) any of his more modern matches where he's going toe to toe with the undertaker, I mean, and and I guess kept thinking back to Shane, do you not remember how your father would wrestle matches? He never got the upper hand unless he cheated, unless he did something nefarious, he had help. And then Shane completely forgot all those lessons as he got older. Yeah. And uh, you know, I'll be complaining. WrestleMania is coming up soon. I'll be complaining. Probably the next time I record about, you know, how 
certain wrestlers like Drew McIntyre today, they don't get over the way they should because it's Shane McMahon and Triple H who are the real stars in 2020, and they come out once a year. And you're not allowed to get revenge on them. It's, it's Stephanie, too. Stephanie comes out and she slaps some male wrestler. And yes, I know they can't turn around and body slam her. That's not how it works anymore. But then why have her do it? Yeah. You've just made this person look bad. And that happens with Shane McMahon constantly. I mean, you how can you sell Daniel Bryan or The Miz as your champion when they're going 25 minutes toe-to-toe with Shane McMahon? Yeah, I I completely agree with you. And you're right. You know, it's like Shane doesn't learn the lesson that, hey, you're you're there. You know, Captain Lou Albano didn't sit there going toe to toe with Pat Patterson or Jimmy Snuka. He came, he got his butt kicked, and he ran back to the dressing room. That's the yeah, way Albano, Bobby Heenan, same concept. You know, you do that. Your job is to is to take your your beating. Yeah, and Bobby Heenan like would occasionally win a match, but he'd win a match against Salvatore Belomo or SD Jones, and he would cheat doing it. But, you know, that puts him over even more. I know. It's an ego game, Brent. We both know it. <laughs> uh, all right. Next match. Edge and Christian versus the Dudleys and versus the Hardys in a tables, ladders, and chairs match. This one now, I, Lita is in the corner of the Dudley boys. I, I, of the Hardys, excuse me. I wanted to point this out. Two months beforehand, I was at the old WWF New York, which is a... a Still a big deal in, in 2001. And Lita was making an appearance there. There was a line to meet Lita that literally went around the block. And I am not joking. That's how over she was 20 years ago. Oh, yeah. She was huge. And, and you know what's funny is it wasn't just guys that were drooling over like you would think. There was a lot of younger females that just saw Lita as empowering. as yes. She was someone to admire. And I can see that when you're comparing her to the other uh, females around at that period, she was along with China, the most, what's the word I'm looking for here? The one that you could look up to the most for being a strong female who didn't take crap from anybody who, who was going to stand up for herself. And I mean, she was a very attractive girl and I'll go further on this story. I mean, it was a crazy cold February afternoon, and these people were outdoors in a line, like I said, literally going around the block waiting to meet her. So I see that, and I'm like, wow, I think they wasted, unless there's something I don't know about, they really wasted some potential with Lita. I mean, she had a she had a nice run back and forth with Trish in 2002, 2003, and they kind of elevated the women's division for a bit where it was taken a little bit more serious before it was then killed again with Kelly Kelly, John Laronitis model era where he just brought in whatever supermodels he could find in the book there to call in and book. But she also, she went from that period to then doing the uh, edge stuff because of the uh, Matt Hardy incident where she was Matt Hardy's boyfriend and then she cheated on him with edge. If you yeah, remember that I do. And as a result of that, they decided to play off that real life. And she ended up having to do some stuff on screen, which she's now said in recent years she was not comfortable with. But she was told by Vince that if she didn't do it, she wouldn't have a job. So that's that's kind of where Lita ended up is she felt pushed into a role due to real life circumstances where then she wasn't comfortable doing what she was being asked to do. I feel bad for the talent when they are asked to do something that is just way over the top. I mean, the talent needs to do with, you know, needs to do with their ass. But back in 90, I think it was 98 or 99, they asked Ken Shamrock to do an angle where he was literally sleeping with his sister, Ryan Shamrock. And oh, Ken, man. Oh, yeah. You don't know about this. <laughs> I Ken, know I, I did. I remember Ryan Shamrock, but I didn't remember that part. Oh, they, they wanted to do this angle. And Ken Shamrock is like, look, I can't do this. I own. MMA studios up and down Southern California. I, you know, people are not going to do business with me if I'm on TV sleeping with my sister. Okay. And that was the end of Ken, Ken Shamrock's push. They were like, okay, well, we're not pushing you. 
Yeah, and that's that. That's kind of what Lita felt too. I mean, especially yeah. with WCW, she felt if she didn't do the stuff on screen with Edge, where she was portrayed as a certain way as uh, as a female, that she would not have a job anymore. And I hope that that's something that doesn't occur in the business nearly as much anymore. Uh, uh well, not that particular. It's not not sexual stuff, but I mean, how long ago was it that Charlotte Flair had to do an angle where, uh, what's her name, the Scottish girl who can't wrestle anymore? Anyway, she made a joke about uh, Charlotte's brother Reed ODing, and it's like, how do you, you know, and and what's she going to do? You know, she can't say no, otherwise she's going to lose her push. So she's got to go along with this garbage. And so I forget how many years ago that was, like four or five, but I think that's close enough to say it still goes on. Yeah, I mean, that's the nature of the business, and especially in WWE, you're going to deal with the quirks of Vince McMahon, his weird sense of humor, his lack of boundaries when it comes to certain things, because anything is fair game with Vince. So as we mentioned earlier, he thinks that should be the way it should be for everybody else, and that's just not how everybody else rolls in life. That is an excellent point. I mean, I used to work as a payroll manager at a hospital, and we had an older nurse who was used to, you know, the manager of charge of nurses being abusive. And I'm kind of like, it's the nineties. That's not how it goes anymore. But she had to go through that. So now all the, the younger nurses had to go through that. Anyway, what did you think of this match? It, from a a spectacle standpoint, it's kind of funny. It reminds me of modern wrestling in that when I talk about why I like AEW, why I can watch modern wrestling, I say, You've got to just accept it for what it is. It's a stunt show. It's a Marvel movie. It's a, you know, you've got to put aside your logic, if you will, your so-called psychology and just accept it as a stunt show. That's really what this is. Yeah. If you start thinking too much about why are they not going for the belt more? Why (laughs) are they jumping off the ladder instead of going for the belt? Your head's going to explode. But if you just accept it as a stunt show, it is an amazing spectacle. I mean, some of the things that you see in it are just jaw-dropping. And everybody in the match, including Lita and Rhino and Spike Dudley, who got involved, all were just had their A-game going and just put it all on the line, taking big bumps and selling everything. And you know, So that's what you have to accept it for. Again, it's one of those things where we say, Somebody who was a fan of the 70s or 80s is going to look and say, well, how can you watch this stuff? There's no psychology. It's a stunt show. And if you accept it as that, then it's it's good stuff. My take on it was like this. In 1998, Mick Foley had that infamous cage match against The Undertaker where he was lucky he didn't get killed twice. Okay. And I was like, I was saying at the time, I'm like, okay, I understand there's a wrestling war going on. And the WWF is behind in this wrestling war. They are losing, but this is going way too far. You know, you need to knock this off before someone gets killed, you know, like Owen did a year later and reel it in a little bit. When I was watching this match 20 years ago, I was saying, okay, the wrestling war is over. We don't need to be doing this anymore. Like these, I thought these guys at the time needed to scale it way back. And I've been saying that. For 20 years now, I'm not sure if AEW is, is that much of a threat to WWE where, you know, they're, they're still doing a lot of the things that they're, that they're doing, but I mean, they need to get rid of the crazy dangerous stunts. And then I think that this was all this match was, and at the, I respected everyone for what they were doing, but at the end of the day, I, I just didn't like it. I thought it was too dangerous and there was no reason for it. You know, that's interesting. And you're right there. You're bringing the old school perspective, the old school fan perspective. And I know you appreciate some of the modern work as well, because we've obviously done live watches together on pay-per-views and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I can see that perspective. It, it it definitely is something that you have to to look at. And, and, and the, at least with this match, other than Jeff Hardy to a degree, at least you can look at the people involved and say, well, they don't seem to have uh, had their lives tearing out terrible. And so that, that that's one bonus. Um, I will say Jeff Hardy obviously is a bit of a crippled mess. If you watch him work a match now, he can do move at about 30% speed, but um, same with Matt. 
Yeah, but Matt's managed to remake himself into a character a True. lot more than Jeff has. So Jeff's still trying to do some of the same stupid stuff. Although Matt has too, as there was that infamous AEW incident where he got himself a concussion and kept wrestling. <laughs> but no, I, I, I totally get what you're saying, but I will say um, you're kind of in the minority on that. It, it's a pretty well liked match by most people who were fans in that period of time. Now, does it age particularly well? I would say no. But I would also say a lot of the ladder matches and things like that don't age so much because as fans, we've seen them, so they don't seem as special now. We've seen all those bumps over and over again. Yeah, I remember being like crazy turned on by the first Shawn Michaels versus Razor Ramon match. And you are correct. The match was well-received in 2001. I am almost positive it got at least four stars in the Observer and in figure four weekly. So, I mean, but I was, like I said, I was saying at the time, I'm like, we, the, you won the war. You don't need to do this anymore. And yeah, I do like the current product. I will be watching the WWE pay-per-view tomorrow, which will be long history by the time this comes out fast lane. And I just found out today that WrestleMania weekend, they're having a full NXT show on Wednesday, a full NXT show on Thursday the Hall of Fame ceremony on Friday, first day of WrestleMania Saturday, second day of WrestleMania Sunday. So I'm glad they're doing it the week after the basketball tournament is over. That's a lot of wrestling. That is a lot of wrestling. I prefer the two-night WrestleMania if they're going to have the super long shows. So I, I'm comfortable with that. But I don't know that we need a couple nights of NXT also. No, I, I agree with you. I think one night of NXT is enough. I mean, I remember, and I totally agree with you, having two nights of WrestleMania is way better than having one long super night. I think it was three years ago. No, it was, I think it was two years ago that they had a WrestleMania that went seven hours and 12 minutes, and I still have PTSD from that night. And that's unfair to the wrestlers, too, because the audience simply can't react the way that a main event or upper card events should get by that point. I no. mean, the crowds just, they they've already seen all the early stuff and they've used up their energy. And then you come up to the main event and those guys are playing before silence. And that's not fair to them because they've earned that main event spot. And now they're not getting the crowd reaction that they need. No, they're, they're getting a bad crowd reaction. I mean, I remember one of the pay-per-views, the chant was beat the traffic for the last <laughs> match. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and that's and that's why I think the two night format might be a a, a better option. I mean, that's what uh, Wrestle Kingdom in uh, New Japan has done is done the two night format, and it keeps the crowd a little a little fresher than uh, six hours. Where by the time you get Roman Reigns in the main event, they're just like, please stop. Yeah, and that's and like you said, that's not fair to Roman Reigns, who I am a big fan of, and I absolutely deserve that spot. Next up, we have the Legends Battle Royal, which. <laughs> Now, talk about opposite reactions. I didn't think it was horrible. I think it went by fast enough, and it was enough of, you know, an elbow in the ribs with Bobby Heenan and, and Gene Okerlund out there. I didn't mind it at all at the time or when I recently reviewed it. No, I didn't mind it either because it was so fast. I mean, the once you saw the entrances, you're like, okay, that's enough. And the good thing was it was a three and a half minute battle royal. So they didn't, they understood that. They understood that, just seeing all the old guys walk down the entrance was really all we cared about. Exactly. So get the battle royal over with and move on. And of course, I'm not sure, you know, Iron Sheik won. And the reason he was selected to win was because there was no way he could take any kind of bump over the top rope or even between the ropes. He was not in good shape. He had just turned 59, if I recall correctly. Yeah. And you, if you would have told me that he was 20 years later, he was going to still be, uh, as um, active as he is in the uh, social media world and uh, still alive, I'd have been like, really? Because he, yeah. he did not look good back then. No, he didn't. He he had a hard time getting to the ring. And, and like I said, it was it was a tip of the cap to some veterans that I, I think deserved a tip of the cap. I thought it was odd that Jim Cornette was in it, though. <laughs> that was pretty funny. All right, on to the The Undertaker versus Triple H. The previous pay-per-view, they had a, a Triple H went over Steve Austin clean in a two out of three fall match in a match of the year candidate. At this point, 
Triple H was way too much of a kick-ass heel. He would start the fight. He never backed down. I mean, he was, I was the first one to, to notice this. I mean, the guy was the size of the ultimate warrior by this point. He was huge. He he was. And he, what's funny about that is for somebody who supposedly swears by the old 80s NWA watching that and is such a big fan of it, he had a heel character. It was kind of the opposite of NWA focused on with heels showing vulnerability. He never showed vulnerability. And I really enjoyed 2000 Triple H. I thought that during 2000, he, he brought it every single match that he did. I mean, he was just on fire with what he was doing in the ring. But he did reach that level where you kind of started rolling your eyes. But if yeah. you thought 2001 was an eye roll, wait until you saw 2002 Triple H. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, and 2003 and 2004. <laughs> I didn't mind evolution. I really didn't. I, no, I didn't I, either. But 2002, 2003, Triple H was where it really got bad, where he just was such a dominant force. I mean, they were making up belts to give him. So that's that's it. But you know, as far back as as this one, what's interesting about this is, is kind of how they, they cooled him down is that he had that huge win over Austin in the the three, uh, what is it called? Three something of hell, three. Oh, I, remember? I know what you're talking three about. Three faces. Of, anyways, they did three different types of matches, and he won two out of the three. And I wonder at that point if they already had planned that he and Austin were going to become the two-man power trip, and then he had the quad tear that changed that. But... If you remember, right after WrestleMania, a lot of people thought he was going to turn face because he was really over, and the fans were cheering him instead of rooting against him as a heel. He could be a heel against The Undertaker, but that was The Undertaker. So there was a thought he was going to turn face, and the crowd was just waiting for it, and then he joined with Austin and became the two-man power trip group. I thought, yeah, and what what I'm from, my long-winded way of getting back to this is I thought the streak was very vulnerable to Triple H in this match because the streak wasn't really a big deal. I mean, they mentioned it some, but it was next year versus Ric Flair when he went to 10-0 that the streak became the streak. Yes, I totally, you're right. 20 years ago, the streak was not a big deal. It was mentioned casually. One thing that the WWF did way better than the NWA or WCW is that they managed to keep things under wraps. Like, no one had any idea they were going to do, for example, the twin referee angle that they did in 88. They were good at keeping things, you know, their plans quiet. And this is going to apply to the next two matches. They never came out and said it, but by this point in 2000, the build-up to WrestleMania, there was no question in my mind that Triple H was going to turn at WrestleMania, which he did not. But to this day, I believe that if he did not tear his quad at the next pay-per-view, and you could tell it was serious as soon as it happened, they were going to turn him babyface and start building the company around him, which they eventually did. Yeah, and I agree with that. I think they decided to hold off on that face turn, do the pairing with Austin. Then when he turned face, he would have Austin. Austin would have a great face to go against with rock being gone at that point filming movies and whatnot and triple h would have a great heel to go to so i can see where they're going with that but that quad tear and it was such a great match too and it was for all the criticism of triple h the toughness he had to film to finish that match is pretty amazing no i i remember watching i have not seen that in 20 years but i remember it was a it was a great match and b as soon as it happened, you knew it was serious, and he gutted it out. And give the guy respect for that. Yeah, you you did, and and I think I think with this match against the Undertaker, as we mentioned, with the changing style with Benoit and Angle, this was very much a Monday Night War Attitude Era match. Yes, it, it was. was very much a brawl through the crowd, punches, kicks, smoke, mirrors. I don't know if there was a hold in the match. Um, <laughs> there was there was some uh, finishers like a pile driver and a last ride, which I thought was interesting. That the last ride at this point with the uh, I affectionately call him the under biker. 
since he was doing his biker phase, that the last ride somehow became more devastating than the pile driver. Yeah, you know, and this was it was a good match, especially considering who was in it. Like the Undertaker was always a good but not great worker. I know I said this about Ron Simmons earlier that this was the night I looked at him and I said, "Wow, he's starting to look old." This was the night I looked at the Undertaker and said, "Wow, he's starting to look old." And he was only thirty-five. I had the exact same reaction. His gut looked a little, you know, looked a little chubby. His face. And then I, I thought it was funny, too, that he bothered to blade like 30 seconds before the match was over. It's like, man, if you're <laughs> not going to if you're not selling an angle beat down after the match or you're not doing this middle of the match, why are you going to bother blading 30 I seconds before the finish? That. I've I, always I just, wondered that when a guy does it late in the match, it's like, do it early middle of the match or don't bother. But that sledgehammer was such a terrible weapon. It's close to bringing a gun to the ring. You just. You're killing suspension of disbelief with that. Nobody can take a shot with a sledgehammer. I don't care if you hit them in the side or you hit them in the head. You hit somebody in the side of their stomach with a sledgehammer, the damage you can do is ridiculous. You hit them in the head with a sledgehammer. They're going to die. If you miss, you're, you're going to kill them instantly. Yeah. And JFK I, the guy. I, I hated that as a weapon for, for Triple H bringing that around all the time. And he's already trying to be the toughest guy out there. He never backs down. He always wins. And he's got a sledgehammer. <laughs> yeah, sledgehammers, baseball bats. I, I never agreed with them. But I, yeah, like I said, I thought there was a good match. And one thing about the match, to me, it was the number three guy in the promotion versus the number four guy in the promotion, or maybe the guys who were tied for number three at that moment in the promotion. Yeah, I mean, it was it was a big match. I was kind of down on the the whole biker taker character. I was not a fan of that character. but. So when I first watched that match back in 2001 live, it didn't go so well with me. But I think because I was in a bad place with The Undertaker, I was reading a lot of backstage gossip about him, which colored my opinion about why he always had to look so dominant, why he always had to win. And at at the time, I was into Triple H. I liked what he was doing. He hadn't become somebody that I was questioning in the same way I was questioning the undertaker that night. Yeah. But in rewatching it this week, I was like, you know, this was two veterans doing a really solid match. That's a good way of putting it. And I mentioned like this match was kind of number three versus number four, or the next match was clearly number one versus number two, or two guys fighting who is going to be number one. It felt like Ali Frazier. It felt like, you know, a dream college football matchup, the rock against Steve Austin, clearly the two top guys in pro wrestling in the main event at the best WrestleMania ever. Wow. I mean, have two guys ever been as over as those two were at the same time in a company as faces. Absolutely not. No, I can't even think of two guys who are that over at the same time, like face versus heel or two heels. Never have you had two guys over at the same time in the same company like this. That said, I did I, I did feel a little bad for The Rock because it was in Texas, so the crowd was more pro-Austin. And then you think about what happened the next year when in Toronto versus Hogan, and you know he had to be thinking, what the heck? I'm supposed to be the popular guy. Why are the fans booing me? <laughs> uh, I never understood why Toronto acted the way they did, not only towards Hogan, but towards The Rock. I mean, I was at this at 19 years ago, to put it mildly, I was not a big fan of Hulk Hogan at all. And to see a much older Hulk Hogan win the WWF title from The Rock, for God's sake, I, it did not sit well with me. You just echoed everything I was thinking. I was a very anti-Hogan person in 2002. And to this day, I don't even want to visit Toronto for what they did that night. <laughs> <laughs> now. This match, it was a great match. In some ways, it should have been a match of the decade contender because it was a great match in the ring, but it wasn't just that. It was everything we just talked about. It was a dream match. Two guys who have never been, we've never seen two guys in the same company this over. But what killed it was the finish uh, with Steve Austin turning heel in Houston, which went over about as, as well as they should have anticipated it going over 
and Steve Austin siding with Vince McMahon. I thought as soon as I laid eyes on this and there were rumors going around that that was exactly what was going to happen. I mean, we all kind of knew that Austin was going to be winning the, the title from the rock because the rock was taking time off to make a movie, but, and we kind of heard that maybe Austin turns heel and aligns himself with McMahon. But when I saw it, I was like, this is WCW level stupid. You know, what's funny is being able to watch it in retrospect. They actually dropped some hints several times during the match. JR and Heyman talked about who made this a no DQ match. And when I first watched it, that didn't click with me because I didn't know what was going to happen. And then the Austin heel turn happened with McMahon. I went, whoa. But now when you watch that, you hear three or four different times, JR and Heyman mentioned that this is a no DQ and they didn't know it was going to be. And how did this become a no DQ match? That was the foreshadowing that Vince McMahon was going to come out. But that, that brings up the issue that I've had with wrestling since I first started watching is how do the heels always know the exact time to come out and interfere? The other near falls, they're sure those ones aren't going to work. They only know the exact time to come out. I mean, Austin had several times where he was kicking out at two and seven, eight. So how did McMahon know the exact time to come out? That is, uh, you know what? And I have never thought of that before. I've I've been a wrestling fan since 1976 and you just connected those dots for me. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it used to feel that way with the horseman too. I'd be like, oh, come on. Flair's kicked out like 10 times. How did Arn know he was fine until just this one? (laughs) This is the time he had to get involved. Now, here's something I had completely forgotten about until I started rewatching the Raws. Deborah, uh, no, they just called her Deborah, was the uh, assistant commissioner or something like that in the WWF. And she comes to to Vince McMahon and she says, look, I want to resign from this position. I want to become a manager again. And Vince agrees. He's like, "Okay, you're a manager again. You're going to manage The Rock. And Steve, well, this is Steve Austin's on screen and real wife, wife, wife at the time. And so now we've got that, you know, little soap opera drama, which I thought was completely unnecessary. And when you think about it, really dumb. I mean, you know, in real life, Deborah would be like, I'm not managing the rock. He's about to wrestle my husband in the biggest WrestleMania ever. It was just, it didn't feel like part of the storyline. It felt like a distraction from the storyline. Yeah, two thoughts on that. One, I agree. I think it was, because especially you had the other things going on. I mean, their sit-down interview, that's what sold that match, is that sit-down interview they did together. Yep. But when you think back to the Trish situation and what she was doing with Vince, it kind of does connect with how Deborah felt obligated to be the Rock's manager, because Vince said. So I kind of would give that part a pass, but it, it did seem like kind of a, a strange distraction in my opinion, made Austin almost seem, and maybe this was the intention because he was turning heel and he was eventually going to become a very non-badass heel. I thought at the time the Deborah stuff made him seem a little less badass, if you will. I agree. And I thought the same thing that, you know, are they doing this on purpose? Are they, you know, deliberately weakening Austin's baby face persona, which they definitely did, by bringing Deborah into the storyline where, you know, he looks kind of sometimes a little bit henpecked on television. This is not what Steve Austin fans wanted to see. And he lost the Triple H. That was another thing, another chink in the armor, which said, okay, this is why he turned to Vince McMahon for help, because he wasn't sure that he still had it. That's, yeah. that's an excellent observation. I never thought of that. I've said this on the show scores of times. There are some guys you just don't turn and Steve Austin it was a guy that you just didn't turn. The fans did not want to see a heel Steve Austin. I, I remember driving home from my friend's house after seeing this show, thinking that I had just seen pro wrestling Nirvana. As a matter of fact, I keep bringing up his name, but they were having a post-WrestleMania IATA show with Dave Meltzer and Brian Alvarez. And I wanted to get home to hear that and just you know thinking, wow, I had just seen the best wrestling show I had ever seen. Does it hold up? Did, did, first of all, when you first saw it, did you, what did you think of the overall show, Brett? I thought it really held up. There wasn't anything bad on it. There was a couple things that were forgettable, you know, but if that's the worst you have, great. I mean, you had 
the Eddie Guerrero test match, perfectly fine, kind of forgettable. You had the JBL gets a pin hometown boy match. It was four minutes long. RTC got theirs and the fans cheered. And you had China, which again, not a great match, but the fans did cheer. The fans liked China. So I thought overall the, the entire show went over really well. I did like the ending, and I'll tell you why. I like that he didn't use the stunner to win. You, he instead rock kicked out of the stunner and then stone cold Steve Austin hit him with a chair like 10 times or something all over different parts of his body. Then he got the pin. And I thought that was another good way to cement his heel turn. Like they had with him losing to triple H, like they had with other little hints and things they'd done. The problem was that the fans didn't want heel Austin and I don't know if this was the beginning of Vince McMahon deciding he knew what the fans wanted better than they did, because we certainly know that in years since that he's pushed that way too often. But it, it, it certainly was, you could see it in the ratings. I mean, you could see that the ratings immediately started going down when Austin became a heel. And I think it's a shame because I thought he did as a heel a lot of great creative work as a character. I thought he had a he had some good work with Triple H, and then I thought he had some fun work with Kurt Angle, you know, just being goofy in the backstage that for it amused me. It made me laugh. I don't know how great it was for the Austin character long term, but the majority of the audience wasn't me. They weren't buying what they were selling. They wanted Stone Cold Steve Austin to be Stone Cold Steve Austin. And I think, too, this whole the way they portrayed him after the show, I think did him some long-term damage, but I mean, I want to underline how much I liked the show when I first saw it. Okay. This is April 1st, 2001. I mean, I, I got a tape for my friend and I watched it again the next day. Uh, so that's how much I dug it. And then it was on the old WWE 24 seven service. I watched it again. I want to say 2006 or 2007. And I remember like being a little bit disappointed. And then I realized that the reason, you know, I already know what's going to happen. I haven't been watching the old Raws and SmackDown. So, so, you know, I'm not as familiar with the storylines. Then I watched it again, again, twice recently. I watched the Raws and SmackDowns coming in and I appreciated it more because I understood the storylines again. Yeah. I mean, wrestling very much. We've, with the WWE network and YouTube and all that stuff, we've created this ability to watch any show at any time, but wrestling honestly was never meant to be that way. Wrestling was meant to be watched in the moment and to be watched to see who's going to win or lose in this angle that's been going on. I will say, even aside from the Raw and SmackDowns, WWE does an amazing job of putting together video packages because you can you can get the gist of every single match that was on that WrestleMania 17 and kind of get the idea of why they're wrestling, what the uh, issue is, and then watch the match. And that's a nice thing to have. I'm, I know they didn't do that so that we could watch it 20 years later. But when you do watch it 20 years later, it is nice to have those video packages. Yeah, I, I agree. And that's why I liked it more watching it again in 2020 than I did in 2007. Let's talk about now what happened after WrestleMania. The next day they had a Raw, and it just wasn't very good. And I could understand that, okay, 24 hours after having this WrestleMania, all right, the crew is going to have a little bit of a hangover. But a week later, they had one of the worst Raws ever. And, I mean, Raw just got so bad so fast. It was insane. They blew off a lot of stuff at this WrestleMania, which is something they don't do much anymore. Things just kind of WrestleMania isn't a big blow off show anymore. And I think they kind of got lost in their direction a little bit because they didn't have things coming off of WrestleMania. They didn't set up programs other than the Austin thing, which again, people weren't as into as they would hoped. And then as it went on, they were trying to also figure out what they were going to do with the WCW guys and the invasion. And I think that also impacted how their booking was going. They were trying to figure out how to to implement that. Were they going to do a whole separate show just for WCW? Were they going to meld them together and just make them part of the roster? That was still up in the air at that point. 
I mean, and a lot of it, too, I think two other things really contributed to the downfall of the WWF, like right after this. Number one, I mean, and they've admitted that, you know, the rest of 2001 into 2002 just wasn't as good. I think Vince came right out and said it. You're always running faster if someone is chasing you. Now with WCW completely gone, the WWF, for the most part, has a monopoly on the pro wrestling business. And it, certainly in the United States, you know, if back then, if you didn't want to be stuck working indies, you wanted this job. Uh, and number two, let's be honest, the McMahon's egos just got completely out of control. It felt like the WWF was used as a platform to make Stephanie McMahon specifically a celebrity. Yeah, I, I agree with both points. Competition has always spurred Vince to better work. When there's lesser competition, he has not had his, the quality of programming that he had. And yes, the overuse of the McNeans became a big thing. I mean, they all run together at this point, but the number of storylines with McMahon's at that point just seems insane when you go across all of the, uh, I mean, wasn't there at that point too in 2002 that they were doing the Stephanie and Triple H were getting a divorce thing? Yeah. And then, of course, that just got thrown aside and then they're magically married again. We're just pretend that never happened. <laughs> and Vince was hanging out with Austin and Kurt Angle all summer long. And yeah, I just think that the the influence of the McMahons got out of control at that point. The success of the McMahon-Shane storyline and the success of the McMahon-Helmsley-Stephanie-Triple-H um, thing that led to a WrestleMania 2000, went through with Foley, I think that made them think they were much bigger stars on the show than they should have been. Yeah, I mean, during this WrestleMania, they had a cutaway during the match of a luxury suite at the Houston Astrodome and where it just said, you know, WCW wrestlers, that's it. They didn't identify one single person. And as soon as I saw that, I'm like, this invasion angle could very well be the messiest thing ever. And it was, and I'll never forget Shane McMahon was in charge of WCW. I think that's the way it went. Vince McMahon was WWF. Yep. Steve Austin had jumped to WCW and then there was that magic night when ECW came back into the fold. Now we have an ECW faction. And at the Stephanie. end of the show, <laughs> at the end of the show, we learned that Stephanie McMahon yeah. owns ECW. And that, that, that may have been the lowest point in my life as a wrestling <laughs> fan. I wanted to throw up. I was repulsed. Yeah, everybody, when they... So excited. ECW. Oh my gosh, this might make the invasion better. And then Steph McMahon never so like, seriously, more feuding McMahons. Uh, so, I mean, you knew the invasion was going to be a problem because Vince decided it, that the WCW guys, as he had before, were not on the level of the WWF guys. Mm -hmm. And then you had the locker room issue. Yes. I mean, imagine being WWF guys and 20, 25 new people come in and you're just looking at them with the side eye thinking, hey, are they here to take my spot? And there's no place for me to go if I lose my job. Yeah. So there was some heat for those guys coming in. And what really killed it is the biggest name that they did get, DDP, was just killed right out of the gate. I mean, the guy was, first of all, he has a hot wife and he's got a be stalking the undertaker's previous wife who was not nearly as attractive as his current wife. <laughs> it, it made no sense. And then he got, got beat up at every point. He never got to get over on anything. And if, if, if you don't believe that one side has a chance, then the crowd, the fans are not going to buy it. And that's the way WCW was right out of the gate. And they had to then put in Austin and, uh, or somebody else who joined too was it test i think and you know you had to augment the the ecw wcw guys because nobody was buying that they had a real chance no i mean it was it was obvious from the start that you know wcw per se was was mcmahon and austin and a bunch of jobbers a bunch of faceless nameless jobbers it was bad and i'll never forget we had the undertaker stalker angle 
and I suspected it was going to be DDP. Now, let's get this out of the way. He's a guy I have a lot of respect for. The guy learned how to work in his mid-30s and became a big star. So he, he worked his ass off, and he's done a lot of really good things, like with Jake Roberts and Scott Hall. But I remember when they revealed who the Undertaker stalker was. The guy takes off the mask, and I'm watching the pay-per-view with, at my buddy's house, and I'm like, is that Roddy Piper? And I, I wasn't kidding. I was like, this guy looks so <laughs> old. And well, he was. Yeah. I but mean, I mean, he just looked older than, than a person playing that role should have been. And I don't know if you could have salvaged that. I mean, maybe if you tried with one of the younger guys, like a, a Chuck Palumbo or a Sean Stasiak or some of those other guys they brought in and try and elevate them through the angle. But the, the undertaker wasn't playing ball. So if he's not going to play ball and whether it's because of Vince, whether it's because of the undertaker, typically with the undertaker, it's both. It's Vince telling him to be a certain way and the undertaker being, yeah, that's how I'm going to be. If they're not going to play ball, nobody's going to get over whether they're DDP Booker T Lance storm, whoever it is. You know, and one last comment I have on this show is, and no kidding. I mean, when I watch this, everyone looks so young and of course they do. It's been 20 years, but I mean, I look at, you know, the rock, Stephanie, triple H, Jericho, Shane, Vince McMahon. I mean, they were all so young compared to what they look like today. And of course, like I said, it's been 20 years. I get it, but it was just kind of jarring seeing these people in these roles for the first time in 20 years. Yeah. I I mean, it's definitely everybody. I think people age better today though. I I really do. Um, (laughs) You you hear about somebody being like 45 years old now and you look at him, you're like, wait a second. I remember when Harley race was like 41 and he looked like my grandpa. So of course, Harley race could kill me if he heard me say that, but (laughs) No, I mean, you watch old, like, you know, old, I don't know, Twilight Zones and like you know, someone who's being portrayed as as 25. You're like, my God, they look like 45 today. Yeah, I, it's, <laughs> it's different. But I will say, I think one of the big things with the, the lack of competition, I think the competition between WCW and WWF, it kept an interest level going, even by the point where WCW wasn't really competing in the ratings there still was a feeling that maybe someday they could get it back. And when that, ex- I know that on the old AOL grandstand boards where I posted, that excitement was always there. And when that no longer was there, the interest kind of really waned a lot. And then you add in the fact that, okay, well, we can at least be excited by the invasion because we've always had these dream matchups. You know? And then none of the big names came over. And then the ones that did came over got squashed and treated like jobbers. And I think that was the last straw for some fans and they never came back. They, I agree. They they didn't have that fun of the back and forth. Who's going to win Monday night war. And then the invasion was so disappointing that they just said, you know what? Okay. The, the fads over, let the hardcore wrestling fans stick around. I'm out and moved on to something else. That's precisely what happened. I mean, WWE, when they, WWF, when they bought WCW, they figured that, okay, you know, WCW still had a respectable audience, you know, for a cable television show. WWF figured, okay, well, these people will just start watching Raw and we will have better ratings than ever. When in fact, they lost that entire audience. Those people just stopped watching wrestling. And then by the middle of May, if I recall correctly, Raw's rating was down like 20%. So we had a very quick collapse. One other thing I wanted to throw in too, I have always thought that it was a huge mistake that Vince McMahon did not pick up the contracts for the WCW wrestlers. I thought that was a big mistake. Their explanation was, hey, these contracts are out of whack compared to our contracts and we're going to have disgruntled wrestlers if we're paying, you know, Scott Hall twice as much as our highest paid WWF guy. You could just hide behind, look, we bought the company in order to buy the company at that dollar amount. We had to take on the contract and we're not signing them to another contract like that. That's how you get those dream matches in. But WWF didn't want to pay the contracts. And I think that was a big mistake. 
I, I agree. I mean, at least some of them. At least bring in Flair, Goldberg, Scott Steiner. Even if you say, nope, I'm not going to bring in Hogan and Hall. They're too much trouble. I would have brought in Nash. I can get not bringing in Hogan or Hall. There's a lot of baggage with those two. But the the others, I think, yeah, if you could have at least had Flair and Goldberg and Kevin Nash, you would have had a much better base for that invasion than DDP and Booker T, who we all liked. We all respected what they'd done, but they weren't big stars. No, I, I agree with you. I think you would have had to take on all the contracts. I think Turner would have said, you know, look, you're, you're, we're not, we're not going to let you pick and choose. And plus that would have blown the story that I would have been trying to tell that, look, we had to take on, we bought the company and we bought the contracts and we did what we had to do. Yeah, I don't know. But I would have, I would have been hard pressed. I mean, it's my own biases, but I would yeah. have had to think real long, hard about taking on Hogan at that point. No, I mean. You can always take on the contract and pay him to stay home like WCW once did to Jesse Ventura. Brent, I want to thank you for coming on. It's been a really good show, and you had a lot of good information for me and the Stick to Wrestling audience. Thank you again. Oh, it's been a blast. Always great to be here. So I'm glad you had me and uh, look forward to doing it again sometime. All right. Thank you again. I want to thank Lightning Lou Kippelman, our producer, who certainly has his work cut out for him this week. (laughs) You wouldn't even know it unless I told you we had some serious technical issues early in the show, and I know Lou's going to make this sound great. Thank you, Lou. And this has been a presentation of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. This concludes our podcast day.